I remember the first image I saw by the artist Thomas Damand. It was called Gate, and it appeared to be a picture of a generic airport baggage screening area. It looked almost real, but was completely scrubbed of any detail. No signage, no people, no markings of any kind. The scene it portrayed was vaguely familiar, but it was unclear if I'd seen that specific image before, or if what I was recognizing was just a generic space that I'd passed through at airports so many times myself. Only after reading more about it in a book that accompanied the exhibition did I learn that it was actually an image derived from a very specific moment. It was a photograph of a life-size paper model reconstructed from a still image circulated in the news, which itself was taken from security footage that recorded two hijackers as they passed through the baggage screening area at Portland International Airport on the morning of September 11, 2001. The vast majority of Deman's work works in this way, presenting itself in the most general of terms before a specific and often traumatic narrative is revealed. In his work, Demand has depicted all kinds of specific locations, though, and always through his trademark method of replication. In addition to the often sinister and serious undertones, it also makes for a kind of deadpan surrealism. An image called Corner, for example, shows us a photograph of a paper model of a news image of the dorm room in which Bill Gates created his first computer operating system. What one called Barn depicts the barn on Long Island where the artist Jackson Pollock was photographed making one of his famous drip paintings. Demand has also depicted architectural motifs and scenes from nature. And in a recent departure, he's begun photographing the paper models made by architects and the paper templates cut by fashion designers bringing his study of simulation into increasingly uncanny territory. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and in this episode of Scaffold, I speak with Thomas Damand. We recorded in his studio in Berlin in October of 2022, and just FYI, Thomas's mic malfunctioned, so I had to use a backup recording for his end of the conversation. This episode runs a little longer than usual, and given how reserved and unforthcoming Damand's work seems to be, he was surprisingly voluble, and in a way, that's kind of the point. What unites all his work is a sense of incompleteness and this invitation to finish the stories his pictures have started, which is why we began our conversation on the subject of fiction. So here it is, my interview with the artist Thomas Damand. From the beginning on, I have been inviting and working with lit uh, with authors many of the pictures i um i consider a, more like the, you know a reconstruction of a memory of a picture rather than the picture itself and the memory is a tool for fictionalization and it it uh, it it blurs the the, the factual matter you know the, the checkability of a story a little bit, not to the extent that it becomes a, true, a, a pure lie, because like a, 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 an author always, you know, he can only write about his own experiences in a way, like whatever he kind of makes of them and imagine imagines it to be someone else. But in the end, it's all rooted in his own factual experience. But it's never, it doesn't have the, it doesn't need to be true. Mm. And you never, you know, like if if Nabokov writes about his uh, childhood and upbringing. You, 
um, and he writes about Uncle Igor. I did actually fact check on that, and his uncle wasn't called Igor. Um, then it's quite interesting because, like, is it not true what he writes anymore? Of course, it's true. It's it, but the truth in that is a very different one from the matter of factness truth, which you, you have in a in a journalistic book. You describe this elsewhere as being the difference between truth and truthfulness. And I mean, you brought up Nabokov. It's the book Speak Memory that you were referring to, where you fact checked um, the details and found them to be. Um, oh, just one. I was just wanted to know with the, the uncle's it, name. Yeah, but he says it himself. Like when Nabokov talks about that book, he says it himself. He just all he wanted to do was remember everything he could remember, like write down any everything he could remember. He wasn't like you know he wasn't calling other people, finding out or something. He just sat there and thought like, what's in my head from that time? Mm -hmm. And that makes that's a very that's a very truthful way of doing it. It's probably not true. And so, in a sense, what the work you do does is replicate this kind of blurring or mm, dissolution or reconstruction of a memory by erasing the majority of the detail of the image, erasing the patina. The surfaces are all very clean. And there's no text either. So the telephones have no buttons even. Um, there's no writing on the papers on a desk. And I think to me this is an incredibly inviting approach where there's this urge to complete the image. And this is why I want to talk more about your relationship to fiction, because you've included a lot of writers, fiction writers, in your books, not in necessarily in the exhibitions, but um, in the catalog. So we have people like Jeffrey Eugenides, Julia Frank, uh, Gary Steingart, Rachel Kushner, David Foster Wallace and Ben Lerner have all made appearances uh, in the orbit of your work and specifically in the books about your work. Yeah. And I just want to understand, I mean, you must be a big fiction reader. Do you reach out to these novelists to collaborate or how do those relationships establish themselves between the artist and, and the writer of fiction? I mean, most, I, they, they, they come, Every each of them comes comes about a little different, you know. But so most of them, I read before I contact them. And uh, but I wouldn't contact them if if they would be so far out that I know that this doesn't work. Sometimes it doesn't actually work, even if I thought it would be a great matching. But um, you know, I don't know the writers I know very well and adore is, for instance, somebody like Jeffrey Eugenides. And I know from his practice that he's a, he's alone a lot. Very simple, you know, and he needs this. It's, to be on his own. And then he spends like five, ten years on a novel and he has, you know, the, he knows exactly when the best time is to write. He knows the best time for his brain, when he when to read, when to look at it again. Like there, there's all these technologies, but they're all based on him being by himself. And artists are not by themselves all the time. You know, like I have to do shows, I have to do this and that and, you know, like, and it's kind of actually it most of the time is is somehow it's it's a communicative process as much as it's a making process, um, and I I just know that if you if you contact a writer with a good idea or like a good proposition or something and like lots of space for them so without telling you I just need a fiction about this and this, um, they very open because it's it means a change of practice it means also like a like you know it's it's easier for them probably to think about something which I put on the table for them 
to to look at or something than coming up for like a short story for a magazine with no you know come do you can write what you like or something like that so mm -hmm. i'm always giving him a hook to kind of hang, hang on to and um and then after a while it's kind of also like things kind of work on their own because you know Ben knows Jeff very well. I knew, I, 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 I read Ben's first novel, Ben Lerner. This is Leaving the Atocha Station. Yeah, and I thought this is quite amazing. And it's also like, it's about writing. It's not writing, it's, it's, it's writing about writing, which is fairly much what I do with photography. And I thought that would be great. And it happens to be that he knew my work and he liked it very much already anyways. And so you just run into an open door mm. sometimes, you know. Mm. But that's a, that's more a coincidence. But most of the, most of the cases, I I read the I read the writing, and I just there's a double meaning of like a double layer of like what this is and how how the inner voice. I, I you know that's one of the main things about literature for me is like the inner voice which you follow. Which mm -hmm. I I have always voices in my head. Everybody does, and and writing is so beautifully can can so beautifully match thinking and feeling. And they can say this in a complexity which would be in conversation would be way too trivial, but also it would be way too complicated at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's something I com I I respond very well to. I like yeah. And and if and if that sets the right tone, like David Foster Wallace was somebody who would like bring <clears throat> this to an extreme, you know that kind of inner voice. But. Uh, um, If, if if I kind of if I if I kind of see if I can understand if I hear that same voice then I think like it's and it sounds all very uh, homeopathic now but like I, you know like you just know it's the right thing when you read it. I've never really thought about an inner voice when I look at your work because I find I'm always on this mission to find out the origin of the image, mm. which is never really laid out for you as a viewer. It's always. A kind of word of mouth situation, whether the image originated in some kind of public tragedy or whether or not it was simply something you saw on the side of the road. But at the same time, what you just said was very nice, uh, very very beautiful, and well considered. Is the the thing about the invitation to complete? There's another invitation. You know, I don't have any people on it. So when you look at the photograph, you just kind of imagine yourself being in that space, or like imagine yourself like at least your inner eye kind of you know what is this. You know, because if there would be people in there, it would be the people on the beach, the people in in a room, the people in the kitchen, or something like that. And that's you know, it it is an open invitation to work to kind of actually try to find in your own little archive, try to find matching elements which kind of maybe complete a narrative or like start a narrative. If you kind of end up clueless with that, which obviously happens very often, then there is information if you need it. Mm -hmm. But there is always information everywhere. You know, this is not like something where I think like, okay, you know, like people have to find a little pamphlet or something. Mm -hmm. We know when we go to a museum, there's a lot of information why we go to the museum. So if you really want to know, you can tell. Mm -hmm. but, the, but I think the work to a certain extent is actually quite open for interpretation and for you making your own... And even it can be on many levels. It can be on the level of the color scheme. The color scheme is always very familiar because it's basically reflecting public taste. But that's the paper I can buy, is what get kind of is public. The surfaces of the paper is very, is much more familiar than the surface of a computer generated image, which is always about like sparkling and being out outworldly. Mm -hmm. um, but then also the the objects on the on the thing. I'm trying not to do too specific. Get, not get too specific with objects so mm -hmm. you can relate to the 
to the thingness, the objectness of all the things because you know them yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, the best example is the is the the egg crate in Saddam Hussein's hideout. Mm -hmm. You know, we have, I have the same egg crate because I buy my eggs in the same thing, and just like this this guy is like fifteen thousand miles away, sits in the basement and. He shares something with the viewer. So just for listeners who aren't familiar, this is from the image kitchen, which is exactly that, but is also a sculpture of paper sculpture that was made from an image of the hideout, the spider hole that Saddam Hussein was in before his capture. Mm. Um, and I just want to, I'm still tempted to linger a little more on fiction for a bit. And specifically with these... But I, I think I need to clarify something. You know, like, I'm not trying to make the photograph literal. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to kind of um, hit this, hit, open up a possibility for uh, what the, what, how the work can work, um, which is not being literal or being fictional or something. It is more like you can bring your fictional understanding to it and it will respond. Mm, I understand. And I think... I mean, what you're describing is the effect of untethering the image from its anecdote. That's a way to say it, and it's also, it's probably um, what's what's left to be see, is to be seen. You know, like um, is it more? Is it less? But it's also if you go to a museum and you look at old master paintings, they all have the, the anecdote left on all of them. You know, because we don't know did did these guys really look like on the portrait or not? Does it matter? No. So, you know, and most of the better paintings are kind of anecdotes, even if they, you know, awful anecdotes, but like they are still, they have a narrative which we don't necessarily understand. And actually, if I say this is about the, you know, the war between the Swedes and the, and, and the Goth in like 1649, it wouldn't give you any more detail mm -hmm. because the, that's not really what matters what is, for, the, for what you see on a painting. Yeah, and a lot of the, the ostensible kind of anecdotes that a lot of the work addresses new, were newsworthy at the time, but over time probably fade in the public imagination. And eventually they'll become probably um, not even footnotes in history, some of them. And in which case future audiences will obviously engage with the work much differently than people who look at it today. I just want to... There is a, a contradiction though in there. Hmm. Because like if they wouldn't be, if they would be footnotes only then and would disappear then I you know sooner or later my work wouldn't work either anymore. All I can say is I, these are pictures these are kind of coincidences or um, arrangements or something. I need to make the work, and it's a fine line. Nine Eleven had a lot of pictures which were very identifiable, and each of them would have resulted in a terrible artwork. You know, so many people kind of didn't do anything with it because it was so iconic in its own. But the the fact that there was nine eleven is kind of that's not going to be a footnote. You know, you know that it's kind of this is going to be a marker in time. The fact that somebody tried to kind of uh, kill Hitler was a, was a thing which is now fundamentally is uh, the, the foundation of German education about the the Third Reich is there was a resist, resistance and that resistance had to, has a picture and that's the picture I redone, redone so I'm not redoing the assassination I'm redoing what I learned at school and the result of what I learned at school should be a good citizen who never starts the fourth Reich and hopefully I'm not going to be the one or any of my generation which will start that whole thing but the 
what I reconstruct in the end is like the purpose of the picture in the whole thing, despite the fact that it's based in an anecdote. I think we should go now to this place of trauma, <laughs> which... <laughs> <laughs> Great transition. <laughs> um, I mean, on my way over here, I was feeling like such an alien or a foreigner. Everything about this city uh, is so different to London or Vancouver, where I grew up, in terms of its relationship to history and its awareness of history. And I think especially of the trauma that I imagine people growing up in Germany carry with them around the events of the Second World War. You're talking about this image you made of um, the room in which an assassination attempt was made on Hitler, which, as you say, was instilled in you from a very young age as a part of your education and your historical awareness of the fact that there was at least someone in the German army uh, who resisted the kind of evil of Hitler's regime. Obviously, you're addressing that event and your, your kind of experience of your country's history. But before that was even addressable, it was a kind of feeling you carried with you on your way to becoming an artist, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but like, a, you know, like, this, this is a twofold. It's, it's communication. It's also about communication, not only about what happened at some point. It's how is it, how is it told to you? Um, and what does it do with you? So if I, I you know, like, I'm, I'm born in Munich, I'm south of Munich in a small village in south of Munich, which there was Stauffenberg, actually, I knew Stauffenberg, which, because they come from there. And Anne Frank comes from Munich, you know, it's not like that you can't think of anybody who, um, not Anne Frank, the Scholl sisters, mm -hmm. um, you cannot, Anne Frank, I go, you know, where I go to holiday, she did the holiday, summer holidays there. So, you, you know, you see these kind of little, um, it's, it's not, to, it's not a total fiction. It's like there are still places, you know, Goloman, the son of Thomas Mann, would, you know, would speak in our school and, you know, like it would, it, it's, it's, um, it's not far away. It's surprisingly close, in fact. However, once I moved to uh, London for my MA at Goldsmith, I suddenly realized much more than before that everybody looks at me as a German, which is I wasn't naive before and I have been traveling before, but like if you go there and you just realize the amount of uh, one dimensional, um, you know, nearly caricatureness of like what Germans are supposed to be, that's a little uh, disheartening, I have to say, you know, because like, uh, you know, like it doesn't get you anywhere, but it still works as communi communication in Britain, you know, mm -hmm. like to call somebody crowd you know, what do you do with this? What, what does it do? Does it mm -hmm. make you more powerful or less? Or does it help you, you know, to look at the art of someone else or something? No, it doesn't. But it's kind of basically also compensating for probably a, a lack of self-confidence or whatever. The reason is I don't even want to know. Mm -hmm. But there's two parts. One of them is you just kind of discover your own past and the surrounding where you are and you grow up with a certain narrative in the background. What it means to be a German, and what, what that basically, that whole incident means, meant, and at that time, my grandparents were still, you know, my, my grandfather was an, was an architect and he would be still in the war. We would talk about this to, a, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the amount of certainty that I know that he didn't do any, you know, he wasn't in the army, he wasn't doing anything like that. He didn't shoot anyone ever in his life, I'm sure, but uh, I know, but uh, 
But of course, there are other families where you never would talk about them. And people from the, coming back from the war, and actually in every country, they, many of them didn't have the words to say what happened. Because they didn't have the words anyway, because nobody talked so much. And also, when they came back, they when even if they weren't traumatized, you know, where to start and where to finish. And how to not get putting, find yourself in a situation where you have to justify you constantly for a situation which wasn't your fault and you got thrown into. Mm-hmm. And... So there's two things. One of them is being a German it's yourself and one, the other thing is like everybody looks at you as a German. And that kind of, that, that sounds like cynical now or exploitative, but like the being a German as an artist is also quite a rich field for, or it used to be a quite a rich field for, um, you know, putting work, work in the world which has a certain readability and you should never forget that as a German artist you cannot forget this as this is said by a German so if I say something about the wall coming down of course I say it as a German I'm not saying it as a photojournalist or like a photographer I'm saying just you know it's it's this is part of my of who I am and that's it, it is being seen you know it, I, you cannot disseminate this mm-hmm. and but the, the growing up in Germany was uh, in the in the early things was like there was many you know like so let's say Munich um, Hitler lived in Munich for a long time. My grandmother was grew up in Gartesgaden. She saw him. She told me late in her life she saw him as a when she was a girl. She went to Mozarteum. She was a pianist, concert pianist, and in the morning she had to take the train. She saw him when he kind of his first his first uh, attempt to power failed in the twenties, early twenties. He had to hide out. He hide, he hid with his sister, which lived in Gartesgaden. That's why he loved the place so much, and he would walk her dog. And so my grandmother tells me, when, you know, at late in her life, I saw Hitler like every morning when I went to the, you know, to the train and went to Salzburg. And so it's, it's completely there. But then after the war, um, the reconstruction is also kind of taking a big part in the whole thing. What, how, what do you reconstruct? What do you want to do? You want to make everything, wipe everything out? Do you want to kind of, um, you know, what, which traditions can you pick on? Like take on, pick up again, and 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 uh, permeate, for instance. So like, and that would be the Bauhaus, obviously, you know, because the Bauhaus was very integrated, integrative, and it would would be, you know, it would you know, women, people of color, people of any any religion. That wasn't really the point of the Bauhaus. The Bauhaus was an intellectual movement. So they were trying to find people which actually studied at the Bauhaus or worked at the Bauhaus or practiced, taught at the Bauhaus, to help them reconstruct West Germany. I can only talk about West Germany really mm. with some competence in early years. So, but that's when I kind of I just one more mm-hmm, sentence. Sure. So that would lead me as a young guy, you know, like in the late sixties, beginning of the seventies, to to be a, a pupil in a in a school which has been rebuilt or built as a um, Bauhaus driven uh, a construction. And that construction was supposed to kind of raise young democratic self responsible, you know, probably resisting individuals, which wouldn't, so that can never happen again, instead of the, the old schoolhouse, which is the 19th century, where the Kaiser says, and then the, all the underlings until you a little kind of, you little guy can, you know, you have to obey. Am I doing that? Is that, is that what I am? Is that not what I am? And that, you know, that kind of stuff like that goes directly into the work. But it is, of course, the product of my history, and I cannot run away from it. So you studied in Dusseldorf. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, I mean, a lot of listeners will recognize the photographers burned in Hillet Becker. 
most architects have a special place in their heart for these photographers. But equally, people like um, Andreas Gursky or Thomas Struth or Candida Hofer, there is a certain attitude probably established around how we understand objectivity that we might associate with this school, the Dusseldorf School. And I just wonder to what degree you also associate yourself with that, that group or school. I mean, you need to see two things about the Bechers. Um, I, as I said, I kind of grew up in Munich and there's a, there's a painting, a tradition in painting, a German painting in a bit between the wars called Neue Sachlichkeit, New Objectivity. And many of the great paintings of that movement are in Munich. Um, mostly in the Limburg House. There's a Rudolf Schlichter, there's like, you know, like Karl Grossberg, there's like paintings which kind of would be meticulously paint the world as it is, even in a very conventional and conservative way, you know, against, it's obviously a counter movement to expressionism. And that was very important because it would, it would bring you down to what is really there, not what I feel and all the subjectivity of this, but like what is really there. And that's coming. That's kind of coming to a, to a, to a very hard stop in when the when the Nazis walk into power, and these people would be as as entarted as the others. But that's important to understand Becher because they completely they were very aware. I mean, of the most obvious connection is of course the Sander project, you know, which has the seriality. Mm -hmm. But it's also the idea of the how, what is the world, what is it looking like, you know, and what how, how individual is it, and how you know is is there anything interesting in a in a in a in a plant which sits in the corner there or something like that you know and would be which would be painted and the second thing is that um, there's a tongue in cheekness in Düsseldorf, which kind of is obvious it's probably more than in Munich or south of Germany, so the Bechers at the same time as they were super serious in doing the things they always knew that is kind of also like a quirky puckish project mm. you know they knew they in a sense of that being so dry. Is like Buster Keaton never laughing when he does a slapstick thing and everybody else laughs and they would never laugh. You know, in the pictures they would never laugh. But of course it was clear that he was a very funny and nice man and she was a very warm-hearted warm person as well. It was always clear that this kind of seriousness is there, mm -hmm. but it's accompanied by um, not humor, but like certain, as I said, tongue in cheekness, you know, com comedian part, mm -hmm. I think. And it's very often overlooked. The, the students don't have that, the, you know, the Struffs and stuff. And mm. they work in a very different way as well, I think, like, than the Bechers do. But, like, they stand clearly on the shoulders of, of, of the Bechers. Mm. I have never anything, I had nothing to do with them. Mm. I, I went to Becher once uh, and asked him for, like, how to make a photograph and stuff. But... Uh, other than that, I never had to do with him. But I would I've, I did a show in Düsseldorf like five years ago, and that was like two days before Hilla Becher died, passed away. She came to the opening, not knowing that she's dying. Of course, she wasn't very sick or something. But uh, And she said, you know, Bernd always looked at your work. He knew the work. Wherever you showed, he had to, like bigger shows, he knew that we had to book and we looked at it. Because I said like to her, you know, like it's really nicer for you. You might not remember, but I came up once and... You know, I, I wish I would have learned more from you or something like that. And she said, no, no, you, you know, Bernd always looked at it. Mm. And I wasn't aware of that at all. So, you know, it's, it's, I know that he, I, I, I was, I didn't get anything from them at the time, 
Andreas Gulski was the only one who said hello and he was extremely nice and but I learned so much also from him and I also learned so much from Jeff Hall by the way that I can you know like that uh, which is also a very human person it's ridiculous to say but it's very kind of very uh, I learned a lot and it's they both became friends which is quite amazing but uh, um, so that part wasn't really important for me what was important for me in Düsseldorf was the tongue and cheekness the kind of the dry humor mm -hmm. like if it's even humor like mm -hmm. even boys had that you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like yeah you know the record the record yeah yeah nee, nee, nee. it's so funny you know and he was a funny man at the same time he was a dead serious man and so the model making you know the, the sculpture the idea of the sculpture which got reinvented in the late 80s in this in in Düsseldorf like Schütte people like that that was much more important for me mm. in Düsseldorf I, not that I knew that wasn't the reason why I went to Düsseldorf but it's just you know it has a new Katharina Fritsch huge influence Maybe we could just briefly talk about some of the early sculptures you were making in school, which... Was this in Dusseldorf or Goldsmiths? There are globes, there were telescopes... Yeah. Globes and telescopes and other kind of everyday Hats. objects. Hats. The shop windows, many shop windows. I started with shop windows. There's this beautiful one of a magnifying glass, mm -hmm. face down on a table, magnifying a strip of paper. I think when I see images like that, I feel like we're seeing into the future of your practice in a way, in a way that's very startling. Mm. Because right from the beginning, there is a, a real consistency and a real confidence in the medium and even the subject matter to some degree. You're from the very beginning simulating um, what we might think of as reality through paper sculptures. And so maybe this is a chance now to talk about the formula. And I understand that maybe that's probably the wrong word for it because it kind of oversimplifies the process. But there is a process. <laughs> Translating a real event or object or environment into a photograph. Translating the photograph into a model. Translating the model again into a photograph destroying the model. Mm. And I want to understand where this process first emerged. Well, you know, the, th the first thing is like, it, it's an evolutionary process. It's not like a, it wasn't, I didn't wake up with the idea or something. It was really mm -hmm. like, I just didn't want to spend money and time. Because clearly, when I came, it was the second or third generation after Katharina Fritsch and Thomas Schütte and these people. And, um, and there were many more, you know. And so, Many people did a very epigonal work on their take on sculpture. What did you say? Like to be epi epigon. What does that mean? Well, being a, being a, being a good, okay scholar, but uh -huh. not, a genius, not an original genius. Uh -huh. So they would basically do kind of fridge work or they would go shooter work or something. I see. So they're emulating their idols. Yeah. And, uh, um, and they would kind of work for like four months in the workshop on one thing which looks like a pot, like a real cooking pot, and then put it there super proud. And I just thought like, you know, if that's happening to me, that would be terrible. And also I don't want to spend four months on this one thing which looks like a perfect object, but is in the end a pot and doesn't do more than the real pot would have done. And so 
I just wanted to be faster. I just had a feeling I don't want to lever- have any leverage. I didn't want to hire a tiny apartment, so I couldn't store anything. And so I had to make very hard, simple decisions on that one. And that's the, that's the starting point of the very cheap material. Then the cheap material turned out to be have actually a, a wonderful, uh, many, many aspects which are wonderful that everybody knows how to work with paper. Nobody knows how to work, make a top pot really, you know, but everybody knows how to work with paper. And stuff like that came on top. And then the photography came on top. And in the beginning, I had the photography, um, you know, like I had to do two sculptures because my photographic skills were so lousy that I just kind of mm-hmm. couldn't mm-hmm. work with that. But that means that you have to translate your own sculpture into something else before you can actually photograph it and that's kind of getting you away from the you know oh how cute is that object kind of feeling so you have to not only throw it away but afterwards but also you you should never fall in love with it too much because you just you know it's a it's a temporary um it's a means to an end yeah it's a means to an end (coughs) and then you um and then you have you, you at some point you photograph one thing like the magnifying glass and then you photograph two things in a magnifying glass in an ashtray and suddenly you have a story of somebody, maybe somebody who collects stamps or whatever, you know, like, and so the narrative, to get the narrative under control was a bigger thing. And the, in Düsseldorf, the Tongan cheekness, for instance, was a thing which came from the fact that there was so many advertisement companies there. And you would, uh, you know, there would be a lot of good graphic design in the city and it was also a lot of good ideas in the city. Good ideas you can put on a poster and funny and people well-educated visual visual visually well-educated people and and even like a lot of jobs in the advertisement industry which I never took any because I wanted I didn't want to kind of I did that in Munich and I didn't want to kind of start working again mm. in you know you worked on advertising in Munich no but like I worked I I you know if you I studied one year in Munich and being an artist in Munich is wonderful and you can, you know, you never, you can go to any beer garden and say, I'm an artist and they, oh, that's interesting, wonderful, without any having ended, ever done any decent artwork in your mm-hmm. life because you get so many job offers, you know, there's film production, there's this and that you can do. Right. And I just lost, I, th- I thought I can do this and it will be fine, but I will never get anywhere mm-hmm. with that. And in Düsseldorf, when I, when I said like I moved to Düsseldorf after a year, I just I made a fresh start, I never working for anything else than art anymore. I just kind of didn't take any jobs. And, but there was a lot, you know, that meant that the exchange between the advertisement world, which means also the photography, commercial photography world, which was all the good photographers had a studio there. And the, and the, the you know, the exchange between these worlds was, was very, uh, was very, very, very apparent, mm-hmm. very, very clear, you know, and so, um, and I make my little photographs and I realized they're not, they don't look like advertisement at all. They just kind of, you know, nobody would ever even consider them to use for anything in, the, in that world. Mm-hmm. And um, which is not bad, which is not, wasn't the problem. It's just more like I just had the feeling that the visual culture is probably more, you know, what you feel, what you look, if you, if you photograph something and it has to look like a photograph of something, it might have to follow the codes of advertisement more than artistic photography. And because that seemed to be the more objective truth of this. So, you know, until I had my photographic skills to the point where I just could say, okay, you know, now now I don't see the photograph anymore. I see the object being photographed. That took a while. And then you have these two objects on there and the, uh, and you have a narrative you can't control. I thought like, okay, objects, where do I see objects in this world? It's kind of, you know, shop windows or displays or advertisement or something. These mm-hmm. kind of things, they present objects with a clear narrative, which is not going overboard. 
and um, and that's why why I got got to the and that's also like there is I always had a thing for like the same object repeated. It's a commercial thing, obviously. It comes from pop art, mm -hmm. like you know six. Uh, six cans of Campbell soup look much better than one camp piece of Campbell soup, obviously. you know. So, and that's kind of, and then I got stuck, and also I, 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 I mean, I didn't get stuck really in terms of working, but I had the feeling, in retrospect, you have to say, you know, the invitation to go to Paris was coming exactly at the point when I needed it. Right? So I moved to Paris for like uh, two years, and then from there I moved to London. So. I'm curious about this move to London and the decision to, to continue your studies at Goldsmiths, where this new kind of young British artist movement was burgeoning. And there are exhibitions like Freeze put on by Damien Hirst, mm -hmm. which featured quite bombastic or outlandish imagery. I think the, the image that inspired the, the name of that exhibition was of a pickaxe wound to the head. Uh, blown up. Um, this is by Matt Colshaw, I think. And so we all know artists like Hearst. We know the formaldehyde sheep. We know, I don't know, I don't want to denigrate it, but there is a, a lot of playfulness and trickery and buffoonery in that moment in art in London. And you'd mentioned this tongue-in-cheek attitude towards what I see as a form of really sober surrealism. I think of Magritte, mm. this is not a pipe. Mm. It's the same kind of mm. knowing chuckle we can get mm. looking at images like that, or Joseph Kossuth mm. and his chair mm. and the picture of the chair. Um, what was it like for you coming into this YBA environment and how did it impact your attitude towards your own work? Well, one, one thing worked and the other one didn't. So I just, the tongue in cheek didn't work in Britain at all. They just didn't know what I'm talking about. They didn't know why I think, you know, like making something so banal would be of any interest. They just didn't understand it. However, what the, in, when you just do YBAs, if you mention those, the, there was a strong link to advertisement, which was Saatchi, you know, and Saatchi was the king and the king of town basically at the time. And because also they had to sell so many bad things to people, you know, like Thatcherism, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so, the advertisement was funny, quick, looked fantastic, and and I think the point by the YBAs and actually I heard this from people from from artists saying that is also like it had you have to get it across in like a fraction of a second, you know it has to be visually so arresting that you just kind of within you just see it with like a glimpse of an eye and you want to see it all or you want to it has to kind of really jump on you, because you don't have time, you know they don't, nobody has time for you so. And if it doesn't do the first thing, it will not work. And for many of those artists, actually, that is really the point. It is just the first punch in the face. And then maybe then this conversation is starting or maybe it's not starting. But like that feeling I, um, I, uh, I've, I met there, which I knew from Düsseldorf. But at the same time, everything I've, I, I had the feeling that I learned in Düsseldorf uh, turned out to be a dialect like the Düsseldorf dialect, in fact, you know, and I thought, of course, the language of art is global and we all know, you know, and of course they understood somehow what they're doing, but they, they saw me as a German doing things from Germany, which is like, you know, uh, whatever it, may, it represents for them, but like the, 
um, the narr- the tongue-in-cheekness didn't work, the narr- you know, the narratives didn't work, the colors didn't work. Yeah, I mean, they worked in a sense to kind of, uh, you know, it got me into goldsmith and we could discuss it, but I just realized that this is, I have, I, 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 I uh, relied on a couple of assumptions which I probably kind of have to question. Mm. The bright color coming from advertisement, the middle, the narrative, the repetition of the same objects, stuff like that. And so I dumped whatever I could from my, yeah, I started with black and white, you know, I didn't kind of have any colors. I started from, uh, you know, philosophy was at some point quite important for me to, to um, basically get a thing, you know, the one thing which was Schwegler's class wasn't, was like philosophical or theoretically concerned or something like that. Is this when you started reading Bertrand Russell and yeah. Wittgenstein? Yeah. Could no, you Wittgenstein I read way before, mm-hmm. but then of course you're interested in Wittgenstein, you know, you want to know what happened to Wittgenstein when he left Vienna and how did it all work. And so turns out he, when he was in Britain, Bertrand Russell was a big, wasn't, didn't share his opinions, but clearly knew that the guy has something going on and helped him as much as he could. And then I got into Bertrand Russell. I wanted to read, what, you know, how can you not agree with Wittgenstein or how can you half agree with Wittgenstein or something like that. And then I read that and then, so it then went to Hobbes and stuff like that. For listeners who might not be familiar with these two philosophers or their dialogue, could you help kind of unpack the impact it had on you as an art student? Well, with Wittgenstein it's so complex because it's so, it seems to be so simple and it's so... Uh, it's like I still know people which kind of study Wittgenstein and they still wouldn't claim that they understood it. Like they studied it for decades and they didn't understand, they really don't understand it. Um, but it is very much about the use of language and what the language basically has to, you know, the brick for, a, the philosopher builds a wall, but the bricks he uses is language. And so Wittgenstein looks at the bricks rather than the wall. And so Bertrand Russell is somebody who, um, and that's why, if, why you know it, it, he would he would not oh that's another thing in London which was quite important uh, the German idealism didn't work the language didn't work you know as mm-hmm. a, my German my English was presumably not very good at the time but that's not the point the point is that you that the, how the German sentence is structured and how the English sentence is very different you can get away in English with with sentence which would would make any sense in German like this is about this it is. You can't say it as a German. It doesn't mean anything. It's mm. just like, you know, what do you mean? Um, but also, the German language is so much more precise in the relation between the subject, the object, and the, and the verb than the English language is. And so, you know, many things you can, which we, you, we would work ourselves, you know, up with, uh, they, they weren't necessary, they didn't, weren't relevant in English. But other things in English were very relevant. For instance, you know, you couldn't say, you know, the table or something. You would always, and then somebody would ask, which table? This table or that table? You know, like the sense of individualism that they, they, this is the case and that is the case, and that's when Bertrand Russell comes into play. That would be much more important than an idealistic version of the world and how we describe it, and then we go to the details. You know, mm-hmm. the, the English people, the English language, the English thinking comes from the details and goes into the bigger part and not mm-hmm. the other way around. Mm-hmm. And Russell would, you know, there, I do remember very clearly a passage where he would say, like, how do we know? What is a table? Do we know what is a table because of all the tables we have in mind? And we got introduced to something like a table? Or do we know what is a table because we identify certain characteristics of a table? Like, you know, you can sit at it, it has a platform on the top, and you can work on it or something like that. What is, how do we know, recognize a table as a table? 
and stuff like that that was way into that was of course like this is not good this is not you know the nature this is what is a table it's mm-hmm. a very different approach to things and uh, very anti-heroic which was very beautiful to 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 get to in you know to basically insert into my own work mm. i just i'm really tempted now just to read a few titles of your work because i feel like it complements this reflection you're having on russell so room corridor archive office bathroom podium model pole kitchen corner drafting room barn staircase studio hedge lawn grotto the list goes on and i think this is exactly what the work is getting at the fact that at once it can be an essential or platonic thing a corridor is a corridor and it can be something intensely specific this is the corridor of the room where the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer lived maybe the direction that's probably best worth pursuing now is this idea of the model because when i read that list as an architect um i'm turned on i'm intrigued and i'm somehow very satisfied by the possibility of the essence of a space or the typology um that you're after and I mean, that's something that i think your practice shares with architecture this affinity for the essence of things and the fact that you achieve that idea of essence through the construction of models also models are incredibly speculative objects they're a hypothesis about how something was or how something could be and in a sense that's all architects ever do they speculate about future environments through the use of models we fabricate possible scenarios much in the same way that all of your work is in a sense a fabrication of something that possibly occurred or possibly could occur and i think this is the way into talking about your relationship with architecture but this is like a fabrication of fiction which is a very famous book by carl einstein which uh, you know one of the most brilliant minds of the early 20s um but the you know like the, the, if you re- read the role of the list the you just obviously know that the typology is uh means everything and nothing it's kind of and then you look at this bit of pictures and they are relatively specific so that gap between what you see and what is titled is obviously intentional because like i could also call it like the diving board i never jumped down from or something like that and mm-hmm. but i didn't you know i'm not madame tussaud i'm not kind of showing you that's not what i'm after you beat me to that you bring this up almost in every interview but people kind of ask me this same question about this all the time mm-hmm. and i th- you know i'm trying to find a very clear answer which is kind of just taking this off the table because that's mm-hmm. not what i'm after but the question but the typology if you if you yeah. you know if you wrote the titles there is i just recognize because we just spoke about dizeldorf is that it is tongue in cheek as well and it is very in a weird way it's actually quite funny i think and and um but it it when i i do remember when i kind of i had to give them titles at some point um 
I gave them the first ones with you, the magnifying glass, which you just mentioned before, for instance, I called, at some point I called them figure one, figure two, figure three, or something mm. like that, but mm. like in an illustrative, in a, in, a, in a scientific book, where you just have like the, you know, the, the proof of what the experiment you did, or something like that, you photographed it, and then it gets a figure in the, in the catalog. Mm. Um, and that didn't really, you know, at some point it didn't seem to be sufficient anymore, so I had to kind of basically move on to that, but I never wanted to have a title which is more than... Uh, where you stand in front of it and you think, oh yeah, okay, that's what it is as well, you know, so it's a corridor. Um, and I mean, the... But we can keep talking about the model, of course. Yeah, I mean, because the, the, the question is specific, it's a better architecture in a way, and what I'm trying to do now is understand my attraction to the work as an architect. Um, and... I think a lot of architects have problems with reality <laughs> and are very drawn to metafiction or reflexivity, where the medium becomes aware of itself as being a kind of simulation. Mm. Um, when we make models, it's obviously not the real thing. It's standing in for something that could be real. But even Bill's work is in some way speculating on the possibility of inhabitation or use. It's speculating on the manifold ways in which a building can be occupied or inhabited. And so there's a kind of blurred boundary between when the model stops becoming a model and starts becoming reality. That is, this is kind of bong rip discussion now, but it's, I think, thrilling for a lot of architects who are really in the business of fabricating reality or constructing worlds. I mean, this is the reason why I think a lot of architects are also drawn to directors like Charlie Kaufman. And that, that, that same sensation, I think, is also elicited when I read David Foster Wallace or Ben Lerner, where there is a very intense self-consciousness or self-awareness of the medium and the way that it's constructing a perception. Um, so maybe... Could you tell me more about your relationship to architecture? Because this is a, a medium, if we could call it that, that you're moving more into now with collaborations with Caruso Sinjin, most recently on the uh, Quadrat Pavilion, the Triple Folly. But I mean, but this is a general question, just well, architecture. <laughs> question mark. <laughs> um, the... So what I said about the title and the, and the obvious gap between the title and the complexity of the image and then the non-complexity of the images at the same time. So there is a corridor, but it's a very specific corridor. But it's still kind of, you could still say, okay, it's a corridor, but it might, it might not never make it in the book or the architectural topology of like corridors because that's, it's not specific enough for that. But the, there's also a gap in between... Um, you know, the architecture as such, as the beautiful architecture or the project, or like, you know, you would never be able to sell a client the house of which that is the corridor of, you know. So in a, in a sense, there's also a gap between expectation and delivery. And um, and th that is, um, that was very important. I was very aware always about that, working with architecture, that there is a certain discrepancy between the beauty of the promise and the actual shittiness of the trivial, 
and I didn't want to expose the shittiness of the trivial too much, but I didn't want to get over it as well because I thought there's a certain uh, there's a certain atmosphere in there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a certain quality to it which makes it a narrative or like it makes it a potential platform for something going on or like something to be read in. Because if you look at the f- at the normal like, architectural f- imagery from let's say the eighties or something, it's all they it tries to be as neutral as possible to show how what a fantastic architect the person is. And if you see a photograph of that corridor, obviously you only would see it because something happened there, not because somebody wants to sh- sell you the corridor. And so I I took a lot of like I I um I took a lot of care on the light. Um so the light is kind of like as profane as possible, as trivial as possible, as vulgar as possible. So it doesn't, you know, like neon light is always nicer for, for, for certain things than sunlight, for instance. Sunlight is always atmospheric and brings in the moment and next morning it's like not sunny anymore. Neon is always there. It's always there, it's always on. It's kind of neutral. You can, you know, like every crime in the world has probably, you know, you know, as crime, love, everything can happen under neon light. But like, um, it would not have a quality which kind of goes into life sca- lifestyle ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. The shadows in ca- neon light casts, you know, really dumb, dark, black shadow. Not, you know, sun always has blue shadows where the the, 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 the light of the sky, the color of the sky would be the, in the shadow or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I worked with that for a while and to make this kind of interesting at the same time and like a, like a potential narrative. Um, and I kind of over the time, over the years, or like to you know, like to restage a photograph, a black and white photograph, but in color is you know now we do this, we can do it in a computer. But when I did Room, which you talked about before, it is there is only small, small you know, this maximum you can get as a photograph is like this is kind of a size of a double postcard or something. It would be very grainy. It wasn't you know, it wasn't done for like Life magazine. It was done for like a new little newspaper. And the only reason for that photograph was basically to prove that Hitler is still alive because he would stand there with Mussolini. Mm-hmm. Um, but to translate this into a photograph of destruction in general, or it is a destruction of like um, uh, at the memory of a destruction or something like that, or like an icon which is actually not about. Um, a disaster or something, but like more like a, a, the message of disaster. You just have to introduce slight colors. It cannot, it cannot be too much of a color. It cannot be too attractive, but it shouldn't be a black and white photograph because then it's an immediately historical uh, document, which you don't want to be either because you want to kind of actually enable the viewer to look into that room, which he supposedly knows. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, stuff like that. And then, you, but an essential thing of the documentary photograph is like in this especially case is like that there was a flashlight. So flashlight kind of casts shadows behind, you know, the viewer. I mean, behind the objects, but no, behind the objects, the viewer can see. So you have a double on the wall behind, you have the double of the, um, you have the silhouette of the, of the, all the objects as well as much as the, as the thing. So you have a very central light, mm-hmm. stuff like that. I would like actually study quite a long time until I understood what I'm doing. And over the over the years, I just realized that architects kind of uh, identified that um, studying of the circumstances of how the light gets in and how, how a narrative can start and how an authenticity of a space, which is obviously absolutely not authentic, but it's you know a paper model, uh, which show a quality about the room they probably haven't seen before or like they did you know they 
they didn't find valuable or something like that. I can't imagine that Norman Foster would ever do, you know, something like a model like I do for selling any of his works because that's not the objective of his architecture. But at some point, an architect, the architectural world moved into into a different direction, which was much less technological and much less monument, monumental as well, in a sense. And mm. and for them, it seemed to be, it had a certain attractiveness. Mm. And I, um, you know, like you're not alone in the world. So you, know, you do your work in, res in response to what other people kind of also uh, see. And if you get invited four times by the Architectural Biennale and once in the Artist Biennale, then you just kind of realize maybe there is something resonating here, which I didn't do intentional, but it might have been, it might be quite interesting. And so, because they understand your work, it's like, you know, like if you show your work to your mother, mother looks at some completely different aspect of the work than you show it to your peers or something. And, at the, you know, architecture is not mother, but like it's, they looked at other aspects of the work than all my, uh, you know, at like than the art world did. Mm. And I find this interesting, refreshing in the beginning, but also interesting because then you would, you would, um, you know, one thing which I often say in interviews is like you look at the model of a piece of architecture and you look at the real building of the piece of architecture and the model is always attractive because otherwise the real building wouldn't be there. If it's a non-attractive model, the client would not would want to have another design. Mm -hmm. But there is the majority of the buildings are very unattractive. Mm -hmm. But nearly every big building was a model at some point. So what happens in, in between the two? Mm -hmm. And so... Um, that this discrepancy is also a creative space for me, which I find quite interesting. You were a researcher at the Getty Institute. No, I would. I An was, artist researcher. No, I was a <laughs> scholar. They call it a scholar. You had a but you had a a year long residency. Can we call it that at the Getty? In yeah, the it's just, I, why I'm pointing this out. This is because it's important. That, because like I didn't have to do anything. And I, I think I was there for the amusement of the other scholars, which actually had to do a lot. Hmm. And during your time there, you did photograph um, other architects' models, specifically the architect John Lautner. And these are models of projects that never were built. They were unkept promises that you were drawn to. And um, in a way, it was a departure for you in the kind of work you do. You're no longer photographing your own paper models, which as you were describing before, very interested in a certain degree of verisimilitude or accuracy. You're talking a lot about light and how to simulate the effects of light um, that were apparent in the photographs you're working from and how architects do this as well. The other side of that is artifice and conceit or deceit, uh, which um, architects are also engaged with in the models they make. Mm. But with Lautner, it's different. These are very abstract and to some extent decaying relics of unrealized work, which through your lens become very compositional and figurative. They're not representing specific spaces, they're representing um, thought, the thought of the architect. So what, did, what made you decide to start documenting work like this? Because since Lautner you've done uh, Sana, you photographed the models of Sana and Hans Holland, and then most recently moved away from architecture and into fashion, documenting the paper templates of the fashion designer Asadine Alaya. So explain this tangent. Mm. So um, 
the notion of model doesn't only, you know, like I, I use the model for very specific, a specific use, I, uh, purpose. Like I, and it kind of, it, it reconstructs, um, uh, the, some, which, something which happened, which we can still recognize. So, so it's retrospect in a sense. And um, what I liked about the architect's models, I mean, what I said about the architectural model and, and, the, you know, and the reality of the architect, uh, architecture we look at, that's kind of important for these things, I think, for, because like the architect's model is, is a lie, as you say, but like there are models for architects which are, not, which are purely for communication, but also for um, finding, finding a proportion, finding, having an idea, developing an idea, or like having an idea, make it quickly work, and then realizing that it doesn't work, and they have to change it. And um, so that notion of the model is also inscribed in my use of models. But I didn't want to do, I didn't see the necessity to um, to change my model to achieve that, because I didn't want to, I have it for a very specific use, and I still do things like that. But like, I just, you know, the, the, what I wanted to show with the models of the others were, were qualities about modeling, which are not necessarily important for my retrospect way of working with these models. And that would be the patina, the biography of something. It would also be, and I, I, I don't like representative models by architects, so that's why it's good that you cannot recognize any of these because they, I photograph them. So scale is a thing which I kind of used for those, um, like zooming in, so a very tiny thing gets very big. And um, you see the fingerprints, you see sometimes even the lines of the, the, the architect or the, the, the designer. Mm. But I, and the haptic materiality of like making something work and fold it and do, do it. Working with hands is something which I, I, th I think is, is something which, I, which is generally, generally not getting enough exposure. But I think it's very important because like that's also re reassuring yourself of haptic, you know, that we think better if we move, I think. And, mm. uh, and um, all these things I could kind of actually pack into those. But and 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 the way to to start it was like because you mentioned the Getty was basically I didn't I don't think they didn't have any idea what I should be doing there. They have sometimes they invite artists with, if they think they can they can you know they have access to an archival and the idea of the archive and they can relate to the idea of the collection and I obviously they saw this with me but like I didn't want to sit there and like talk to all the art historians because that wasn't so I looked at I looked around and everything they have is filed and everything every file they have is kind of you know put in a computer and a computer is the most uninspiring tool i can imagine for finding something for discovering something because everything is there but you know already before you even start that everything is there and somehow like every discovery is basically a reconstruction of like somebody else putting it in there for you to be discovered mm. so you never have the feeling that this is a really great thing except the one odd uh, storage they have you know, where they got they get all the files and all the drawings by Lochner, but they also get these thirteen shitty little models which you mm. never can show because mm. he and he only didn't throw them away because he hasn't built them because otherwise he would make a clean table, throw everything away, give the drawings to to, to the client if they, he wants them or the, other than other than that kind of get move on. Mm. And they were only there because of that and they could, were so fragile that they couldn't show it and they couldn't file them either. Uh -huh. And so they have an odd uh, storage, which is like two hours north of Los Angeles, and they allowed me to go like for two hours every Tuesday and to see what's there, and of course that was much more interesting to see 
these tiny little, you know, things which need a lot of care and mm -hmm. cannot be exposed to light and cannot be touched and all this. And so, um, yeah, but I d that's the that's the first one. And then I thought like, and then I saw I saw I knew Sana quite well, uh, my son and. I, when I visited in Tokyo, the um, the amassment of models and how they use them in the communication of the office itself. It's, it's a formal communication, which is so important because the, 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 the office is so international. But as you know, Japanese people are not, they don't like to speak English if they don't really can speak it completely 100% perfectly. So a lot gets kind of without language and through the models. And I found this quite amazing. And then also like the level of, uh, the level of, um, perfection in the making of the models they use for those is like zero it's just like they really go to the copy machine they cut something out and glue it together and look at look at it and is this anything interesting and if not they discard it but they don't discard it in the in the bin they just put it in the corner and then mm. there's mm. corridors of models that mm. you know, like it's unbelievably beautiful to see and so but in the end all this is more abstract work than my other work. It's kind of, it's really, it's a classic model, idea of model of photography. You photograph what's in front of the lens mm -hmm. and you just kind of, you know, add, you give a, you, it's, you have to be there at the right moment, especially with Alaya, I had to be there in the right moment, <coughs> which is the Henri Cartier-Bresson idea of photography. Mm -hmm. <coughs> because the otherwise... Hmm? The decisive moment. Yeah, because otherwise, the you know, the constellation between the, the patterns would be a different one. Mm -hmm. And so the ones which, you know, which are perfect, they're completely coincidental mm -hmm. because like it happens to be that that hanger hang, hung to the next one in the studio at that, at that evening. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you wouldn't have been there, you wouldn't have been able to make the photograph, which looks completely perfect in its own. So you're talking about chance, iteration, patina that comes along with experimenting or discovery through model making. And these are all phenomena that are totally invisible in your work. And so in a way, when I see the images of John Lautner's study models or Sanna's or Han Holein or the, the templates or patterns from Asadina Laya's clothing, I feel like a certain wish is fulfilled in tangent to your work, where we're never allowed as viewers to see the progress or the working models. We're never allowed to see to what degree chance factors into the decisive images you create. And I feel like if someone were to photograph you at work, if someone were to photograph your studio with a model in it, it would constitute a major trespass. It would be some kind of transgression. It would undo something that the work has achieved. Yeah, I guess it would be, but it's kind of, you know, um you know, you don't want to see the rabbit in the ha in the hat taken out by the magician. You want to see the rabbit coming out. You know, the, the, it's it's that's not the. But I want to go back to the chance because that's you know that is reflected in these are groups of works and you have the variation of the same thing from same angles from different things, and so the the grouping of that like you know I think it's thirty four in Lautner it's uh, forty something in Zana it's sixteen with Hollein it's you know like that you see the same thing with if different on different angles and different scales and things that. Um, that is a bit the chance. It reflects the possibility of accidental, you know, like you see variations of the same pattern hanging on the in the alayas, and sometimes they hang next to a blue one, and next then you see the exact same pattern and it hangs next to the red one, obviously. 
you know there is a there is a there's a sort of a moment of, uh, a moment of momentness in this as well and mm -hmm. and in my other photographs there is no chance mm -hmm. you know there's absolutely zero chance i don't have i work with artificial light i do whatever i do i photograph it as, as long until i have the exact photograph i want and i can i can change every each part there's nothing you know like if you photograph the sky you don't have any influence if you photograph in inside in and you have a complete control about everything you will not have there is no chance mm. you know there is it's everything I, the, most of it i actually made myself because like that's also i i'd rather delegate my administrational things than my own work to some other people and i kind of try to keep it uh, actually away from that and if you I'm not afraid if somebody would photograph it. I just don't. I think it's kind of trivial because it's kind. Of, you know, that's the, that's a kudos moment. So mm -hmm. you have the photograph of a chair. You have a chair. You have the lexicon. So now, mm -hmm. if you see a chair in the real, then it's a chair. Mm -hmm. you know, I love the way that Jeff Wall put it, where the photographs of your work are really photographs of of your studio. Mm. We just don't see beyond the object, but the object is always inside a studio. And, and so, uh, yeah, there's something. Walt said something really interesting as well, something else about art, old art. And he said like the, the art is always contemporary because you look, the moment you look at the art, that's when the art, that's, that's the art, the moment you look at something. And if that something is 500 years old, it, but you look at it now, it's actually now. And not then, mm. and we never we're not aware of that ever. Mm -hmm. and that's kind of, um, it's it's quite profound, mm -hmm. I have to say. Mm. I mean, just by nature of the fact you chose to photograph these paper objects, you are drawing some relationship between them in your work. You've authored these photographs as as much as you've authored photographs of your own constructions. But then at some point, you stepped closer to translating a model into reality, if we could call it that, through a specific project you worked on in collaboration with an architect, Cruza Sinjin, which is a pavilion for um, a textile manufacturer called Kvadrat, mm. um, which uses a formal language of paper and its pliability and its creasing and folds and um, scales it up into a life-size model and this is interesting to me because all of a sudden you're literally taking on the role of the architect. You're constructing environments that are host to daily activities. And you're also designing at an industrial design scale. The interiors, you design door handles, tables, chairs, not to be photographed and for the models to be destroyed, but to actually persist in the world. And I feel like you've somehow, not somehow, in this case, you step through or past a certain threshold in your work. Can you talk more about the experience of transitioning from the model maker to the architect? Quadrat is kind of a different thing. I just, you know, like what I said about the notion of the model, which is not only retrospect with my historic work, but it's also, it has some ideas about how we think, how we model and how we do. There's another aspect of my models, which is the, the, the logic of paper. Which is helps people to understand what I'm, what I did on a very basic way, but it's also an entry point. 
um, because everybody has, you know, no, 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 not anymore, but it used, everybody used to have like geometry at school and they would make, you know, a pyramid or something. And so you just have a feeling how to build something out of cardboard and that feeling is kind of quite important and it, again it's kind of uh, very different from the experience with computer mm. and just to describe for listeners who haven't seen the pavilion the quadrat pavilion in denmark it's eff effectively three forms one is a chef's hat of some description mm. one is a paper plate and one is a um, creased kind of legal paper um, that creates this kind of um, pitched roof mm. um, yeah, so to your point about the logic of these formal or geometric operations on paper, that's effectively no, like, what it is. On a formal level, I just wanted to have the logic of paper, and that connects it to the rest of my work. I don't think, I don't think it's such a huge jump. It's just a very different medium, and it has a lot of... It, I need, I'm glad I had a little bit more experience before doing this for the first time. So, um, but the... The, the genesis of the whole thing comes from a different point of view. It's a, it's a textile merchant, which I kind of worked a lot, many times with for other things. And they wanted a building. So when if you kind of put, impose the two notions on top of each other, you have a, you know, fabric building. What's a fabric building? It's a tent. So I started kind of thinking about tents and did that's, I really did a lot of research in the notion of tents. And I started with camping, military, uh, Oktoberfest, um, you know, the, the Himalaya, the base camp, uh, there is like, you know, it's, it, 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 there's a rich, long history, opera, um, uh, uh, you know, sceneries in opera and literature, but then also 99% refugee crisis, uh, Gaddafi, like, uh, you know, there is <coughs> a lot of tents in, in, our, in our repertoire of like looking at tents, like lo lots of narratives, lots of, but at, that time, at, that, at some point I thought like this is not the Washington tent, yeah, the, uh, you know, George Washington's tent, mm. beautiful where he lived with his slave. Mm -hmm. <coughs> um, um, but then I thought, you know, like the, um, if I do now a funny tent, like Hager Park has a tent out of copper, which is really beautiful. Mm completely huge tent, completely made out of copper and painted like a tent, like a military tent in the 17th century. Um, then I'm, uh, then I, I, the circus in the town on the top of the hill, with the, you know, the, the camping has like beautiful color schemes, like the tents come in hilarious colors, like now, you know, which you never would paint your house with. <clears throat> um, I took some of these things and then uh, I just kind of had I just I try to imagine with as you say specula speculation of what the what they actually need when they ask me because they only ask me for a meeting place that's all I could it could have been anything mm. and I thought like okay you go there you want to say probably sit down have a have a you know negotiate you want to have you want to host people and you probably want to um, reflect you know on what you just did all day or something like that and so. Um, I found, I thought like if I translate this into paper objects, it would be the legal paper, it would be the plate, and it would be the hat, which is housing the brain, basically. And so um, that's where it came from. And then I just kind of started in figurative architecture, Camp Happy Times by Frank Geary is, is, is a wonderful scheme he did, which I completely, I, I always adored. And then, um, you know, I'm a monument, I'm a duck that whole discussion coming into into that thing. I thought that that was all kind of quite quite a fruitful 
context to be working in. The way you're describing your research and your awareness of precedent and your intimate understanding of sensation and perception. I mean, you really sound like an architect to me right now. <laughs> is, is, is that an insult? <laughs> no, not at all. But that's effectively what you become with this project. And I think what, in a way, one could suspect you of having had been all the time. There's this beautiful essay by Beatrice Colomina um, called Media as Modern Architecture, which posits exactly that. Mm. To what degree do you agree with that accusation? <laughs> well, I, you know, I do, because like they work, I mean, one of the reasons why I think they ask me to do it is because if they, they work a lot with architects, very famous architects and very not famous architects, and also like all the common architecture, like the hotels of this world and the office buildings, which don't have rim corners, you know, and they keep coming all the time. And so for the opening, they asked me to kind of host the most important clients they have. I mean, not the famous ones, but like the, you know, the big projects, the big project in China or like the airports in places we never go. And they came and the response I got from them is like, it, they, when, I, when I told them what was important for me to kind of consider for this whole thing, which is kind of a complete eccentricity, of course, in their eyes, you know, and I said, or like one would say, like, I mean, we can never get away with like making our own door handle, you know. Um, the eccentricity of it is, I was aware of that, but they all, you know, most of them said like, it's very funny that you, that you, uh, that you describe everything you do as a narrative, and they would never describe architecture as a narrative. For them, architecture is a structure of a function, is a, is a is a solution to a problem, or you know, like it's never. And these are the everyday clients of Quadrat, not the architects of those projects. No, this, the, no, this, these are the architects, oh, but not the famous architects. Oh. I mean, not the not the star architects, which probably mm. would have a thing for that, but just mm. like the architectural you know, does an auditorium in a university with like 600 seats and the seats are all done with quadratic kind of textile mm -hmm, or something. Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. These people, and that's basically where the volume of the of the business is coming from. It's not coming from David Chipperfield. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. um, and so I just realized that maybe I don't, actually I'm not an architect because I'm not interested in sculptural, in, in structural uh, concerns. I'm interested in sculptural concerns. And narrative. And I feel like that, that actually, to me, really resonates, at least with the architectural education. Maybe once um, the realities of practice kind of bear down on architects, the narrative falls away because it's seen to be frivolous. But actually, it's all about convincing mm. and it's rhetoric. And oftentimes, the narrative is what convinces the client. Um, I mean, it's very closely related to advertising, actually. The pin-up, the crit, the review, the pitch. Mm. Narrative is so entangled in all of that. Mm. Much in the, yeah. You know, the, and exactly, that they call it narrative. I wouldn't even call it narrative. For me, it was like, you know, it is a situation, uh, creating a situation with a certain, uh, with a certain memorability or like you know like a certain quality of it, of it which is very unique or something like that it's just not even a narrative pe person you know like like rem would talk about the museum as a shopping mall or something like that's a narrative but no i wouldn't even go that far with my narratives you know i wouldn't even claim to be able to do any of that mm. but there, well, you were compl you were mentioning uh columina and the i think that book was actually quite amazing because Lowe's I never understood Laws as a as a as a person who um, is working for photography. Of course, you would know that with with Le Corbusier, 
because he would post a car in front of it or something like that. He would do these tricks, you know. But Lois is not wasn't not on my list of architects which were, were would work for photography. And when he wrote this, I just realized that it's something which I also recognized with Lautner then. Lautner is very, at the time I started working with it, Lautner is, it was very unpopular with architects. I'm not sure whether it's still the same. Because they they didn't really accept him as, because they, he would, you know, he would work mm. for film. Right. It would be so film. It's a famous kind yeah. of cinematic environment. Exactly. James, James Bond and stuff. And, and the reason why they, why film loves him is because like you have like the you have the protagonist walking from left to right coming through a door and while the and the backdrop kind of changes all the time because like the, the house is so you know exuberant in ideas that it's not a rational thing it's not running down an airport corridor where the end of the corridor looks exactly like the beginning of the corridor but like while while she's talking to James Bond about something you have a backdrop which changes it the whole world of architecture as a backdrop is kind of coming by mm-hmm. and that's kind of something which you just you know like with with the with the Columna book for instance is not is it's the, the the role of photography of architecture is quite interesting because like you know, when you look at Julius Schulman's photographs of like which is the main guy for photographing architecture in the, in the 20th century I would say um, it's you know like he always photographs it in a way that you can complete the picture because the rational uh, uh, structure the you know like how windows Continuous, are and stuff yeah. you would always know how the rest of the building looks like because and he only has to photograph the corner which Lord, with Lautner you can't do it with Lowe's you can't do it either mm. you know because mm. it's like And when you bring up Lewis, I mean, what I read from um, that Colomina essay was that Lewis was criticizing another architect, Joseph Hoffman, because Lewis couldn't determine whether his buildings were real or just a picture of a model. And this is her hinge into this declaration that um, your work is in a way the opposite and that it was only a matter of time before the photographer became the architect as a result. Um, there's just one more subject I want to touch on before we finish. Uh, and would it be such a good last word, I don't know. <laughs> well, it could be. I always do this to myself. I shoot myself in the foot. Um, I just feel like it would, be, it would be tragic if we left it out, and that's the dailies. Because you were talking about chance earlier and the role of chance in your work and the fact that really there is very little left to chance in the work you do. But I feel like maybe the dailies as a series is an exception to this because these are chance observations you've made and recorded on your mobile and then translated into paper models and photographed. There's no direct historical narrative or associations that are made. There's no collective trauma that's being conveyed. It's simply happenstance. It is chance in a way. I mean, it reminded me a lot of work by Richard Wentworth Mm. and his series Making Do and Getting By. I had the privilege of joining Richard on a walk recently and interviewing him. And seeing those paper models, I mean, most of them are actually interiors, but there's some kind of urban, kind of detritus ones as well. I feel like there's a very close relationship between this kind of mode of urban observation or flannery. Mm. And in a way, they feel also like very architectural work as a result. They're, they're concerned with occupation, use, the evidence of inhabitation. Yeah, also destruction, you know, failure. Mm-hmm. But the, um, 
went with is like it's a it's a good uh companion he's a good companion anyways but like the works works are also good companions but i have to say that my my interest in that came from something else which is like that the photography as a medium is like quite i think it's quite important to to be to be considered uh, in general because like it's the most democra- democratic accessible uh, medium we we have in the individual arts um other maybe to performance but but else you know like you know, who knows how to make a oil painting um and then I can, you know, when I started out, there was the big discussion about whether photography is dying because of Photoshop and like manipulations and digital and analog and stuff. And all that obviously didn't happen because everybody knows now how to make a photograph. So photography is more popular than it ever was. And that means that more people understand what a photograph is showing. But they don't do this because they all go into newspapers, which the main role of photography was before, you know, because a few specialists would deliver an objective truth to the New York Times front page. Now it's like the main, where the real music plays is, is like the social media for photography. And those photographs hardly ever have a narrative. They, you know, they show maybe a face, you know, whatever, new Botox, new hairdo or whatever. <laughs> but if they don't show a face, they show like a funny little incident which doesn't, is not worth more than just, you'll be sent out and then forgotten. You know, it's not really about... Uh, news of the world is take of news of around the corner more and then um and i f- i found this is a huge territory for photography which i wanted to look into and not kind of because the historical uh reference always has the good thing is also it's super safe because you know that it will stay in the world because of of course it kind of is already kind of given to you as a historical event um, and all the other events which might have also happened are forgotten by now. So you know somehow there's a safety net in there. And with the dailies, I thought like it would be it's 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 a part of practice of photography which I really would like to be part of, like would would work with or would like be uh, look into. And that you know, it, and I needed to counterbalance it with the lightness of it, which is kind of it doesn't matter really whether it's there or not. And I, one of the one of the one of the balancing balancing acts on that was like to pair it with a technology which is so long and old and long taking, but also with a certain lightness um, to it, which you know poetry Japanese poetry has in haikus. Exactly. And so I just wanted to kind of you know that it becomes like it is not historical in that sense, but it has a weight to it, which is in its in it written in its lightness, you know, intentionally, and so. Um, Wentworth does the same. I to admit it. I mean, it's not. It doesn't look the same, but it's like it's. That's why I think it's. It's kind of. It's good that you say that. Um, but my my concern was coming really from the from the practice of photography, public photography. <clears throat> and none of these kind of works have a narrative. They all or like it's of course they have a narrative, but all what you need to know is actually really on the picture. Nothing is hearsay, nothing is kind of, oh, I recognize this from somebody told me or I read it yesterday on the newspaper or something. Everything is on the picture. And that's mm-hmm. quite, kind of important on the whole thing. In addition to describing them as haiku in picture, in picture form, uh, you've also described these images, which are just so everyone's clear, apparently of inconsequential things you've witnessed, either on the street or in, in your home or something. And you refer to them as dummies um, that bear precisely the right number of symbols to be recognized as such. 
uh, which is kind of a weird formulation, but the writer or the critic, Hal Foster, wrote about the work and I think illuminated a point that we began with and maybe we could end with as well, which is the fact that dummies, um, we have a tendency to want to make speak. <laughs> that we have a, a desire to ventriloquize. And I feel like that's precisely what all the work does. That it's, it's um, blank enough that it invites this um, kind of plenitude of interpretation and, and discourse. And I mean, I'm flanked, no one can see this, but by just walls of books of your work, which is a testament to how much has been said and can be said about it. So Thomas, thank you for giving your time and saying so much this afternoon with me. Very welcome. Thank you for the interest. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Thomas Dayman. Special thanks this week to Adam Caruso, Michael Mack, and Shelley Rosenblum. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.